What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. Happy Friday. We have made it through the entire work week. We are heading into a weekend and a weekend that I love, by the way. We're going to get an extra hour of sleep. Now, don't get me started on daylight savings time. That's a debate for another day. But we will get to hit an extra hour of sleep Saturday night into Sunday. Today, though, Wraps up an amazing week. Think about this. Alan Dershowitz, Morgan Ortegas. Um, we had Andrew Clavin today. Dinesh D'Souza is with us. He has a brand new movie out called Police State. We are going to get into it in a way that nobody else will. That's what we do here. Um, I got to go see it. I'll tell you about that in a second. Are you ready? Let's get into it. All right, it is Friday. We are headed into the fallback weekend. Yeah? Yeah, you get the extra hour there Saturday night. So you either get to sleep in, stay out a little late, maybe both. I don't know. That's up to you. But uh, here's where we are. And then it gets darker. And I don't like that. But again, don't get me started on this. I I think we should stop daylight savings. It annoys me. Uh, But... I don't want to do that because we have a great show headed your way today. Dinesh D'Souza is with us. Um, I flew down to Mar-a-Lago. Sorry, didn't invite you. Didn't really have extra tickets to watch the premiere of the movie with Dinesh. Um, it was unbelievable. Literally a really cool thing. A lot of key folks down there. Um, you'll see some pictures scattered through the show of some of the folks. I talked to Dinesh. I talked to Dan Bongino. Um, you're going to love this conversation that we have. Uh, you guys may know Dinesh is a political commentator. He's written a ton of books. He uh, was the documenter filmmaker behind 2000 Mules. Um, but I think this movie is extremely powerful and in a lot of ways. And you're going to enjoy the conversation because I'm going to talk about this. I want to play the trailer for you and then jump right into the conversation with Dinesh. Um, and I think the thing that you're going to like about this is we really get into what does this mean for the future? It's one thing to talk about what it reveals, but how does this impact President Trump, a second term, and what does it mean? All right, here's the trailer, and then we'll jump right into it with Dinesh. They're not just deplatforming you. They are trying to throw people in prison. If they're coming for me, they're coming for you. Hands on your head! These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech! Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. Police State. Exclusively in theaters, October 23rd and 25th. Tickets sold only on policestatefilm.net. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. 
And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. Hey, Dinesh, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us, man. You have had a busy week. What an amazing event at Mar-a-Lago kicking off this movie. And again, thank you for having me and including me. I thought that you were actually inviting me. And then I got there and they like, sir, uh, you can grab this tray and then serve it to the VIPs. And I, but I, I still like being included. So that was nice. Sometimes when you wear, wear the waiter's outfit, uh, you get confused with the staff, but you were never intended to be that. I think it was just a, a big misunderstanding. And once they realized it was Mr. Sean Spicer, I think everybody stepped back and you joined uh, the guests. And I, I'm glad you had a really good time. I thought it was a I, wonderful I crowd. Yeah, I, I had the coconut shrimp being, passing around, which were really good. I did sneak a few. But I'll tell you, it was... Um, let me just, before we, I want to get into so many things, but how do you think this compares to the launch of 2000 Mules? Well, it's um, kind of an interesting question. Um, the formula for releasing the two films was very much the same. Okay. In both cases, we bought out a bunch of theaters and we opened with um, packed the, you know, theaters and rave reviews to really both movies. And uh, then we did a successful virtual premiere and now the movie has moved into sort of streaming and DVD. Okay. And well, um, can you just, I, I, and again, the, just, I said it at the beginning, but the, the movie's called Police State. Can you just, and this is interesting because this is where I wanted to start, but explain, I, I'm fascinated by this. When you, can you go back to the beginning? When you say you bought out movie theaters, A, is that normal? How does that work? I just, I, I didn't even know that you could buy out a movie theater. And what does that mean? And how does that affect how it does? It's, it's not my uh, traditional model because with my, all my earlier movies, we opened in a normal way in the theater. In other words, we opened in hundreds of theaters. People bought tickets the normal way. The theatrical environment after COVID has been kind of different. And so we uh, need a sort of different formula to make these movies successful. So the formula we hit upon is we happen to know which theaters and which parts of the country our films do really well in. And so what we did was we, we picked two days. In this case, it was a Monday and a Wednesday. Uh, you can't really buy out theaters on the weekend, but they'll, they'll allow you to buy out a theater uh, during the week. And it's kind of a good deal because you buy the tickets for a couple of dollars per seat, and then you sell them at a higher price. So even if you don't fill the theater, you can actually have a very profitable screening. And that's what we did. We had a sort of about 800 uh, to 900 screenings. Um, over two days. And, um, and as I say, we kind of had advanced intelligence. We know that this is kind of where our audience is. And so we promote heavily in those areas and we fill the theaters. So it turns out to be kind of a, it's only round one of releasing the film, but it's a good way to go. And so why do you, so number one, when you do that, when you buy those tickets, then do I have to go to police state or something like that and buy them? Or do I buy them still like through Fandango or something? No. Right. So if you, if you, Put the movie in the theater the normal way. You can go to the theater and buy a ticket. You can go to Fandango. But when you buy out a theater, it's not like that. It's sort of like it's your private event. And so as a result, the only way to get tickets is through the website. So we use the website as our one-stop shop. 
We hire a ticketing agency, which kind of handles the ticketing for us. Basically, you buy the ticket, you download it, and you got it. Then you just bring that ticket with you to the theater. And uh, as I say, we kind of got people used to doing that with 2,000 meals. And so when we did it this time, again, with Police State, it worked well. Okay. And then, so what's the point of doing two nights? And is that to get momentum? Is that for critical acclaim? Is that for Hollywood to acknowledge it? Like why, why two nights? Why in the theater? Well, it's, um, documentaries are typically not that good for the theater because they tend to be a lot of interviews and then stock footage. We make our documentaries like movies. They're very cinematic. They uh, have powerful recreations. There's, uh, you know, music. So it's a, it's a theatrical production. And so for that reason, I like to put them in the theaters and a lot of people like to see them in the theaters. They're used to seeing them. They like going with a bunch of their friends. They like the experience of talking about it and going out to eat afterward. So there is an audience that will watch at home, but there's an audience that sort of demands the theater. And so this is our way of delivering that. Yeah. I mean, when we were watching it at Mar-a-Lago with all of those folks, there was something about having a sense of shared uh, experience that I thought was interesting, uh, both before, during, and after. Because afterwards, you can get up and immediately talk to your neighbor about what the experience was. And I thought, I I get it. It makes sense. And then, so walk us through. So it it did the theater piece. And then where does it go from there? So then we did something that is kind of my uh, innovation, if you will. It's a virtual premiere. And a virtual premiere is these are people who are not coming to Mar-a-Lago. These are guys all around the country. We go to a, a fabulous studio in Las Vegas called the Warre Studios. And it's kind of like one of those 360 degree uh, screens uh, all around. And it's essentially a massive Zoom call. You buy a ticket. <laughs> And you zoom in. And so we had, what, 20 or 25,000 people zooming in. And, wow. uh, and we put all their faces. Well, we can't accommodate all of them. But thousands of people's faces are on the screen. And then we had Forgiato Blow, the rapper, you know, perform his song, A Police State Survivor. We showed the full movie. There was a live Q&A with Bongino and Me to Follow. And so people get a sense, again, of participating in something with other people and there, there's interaction. So they're able to type in their questions. We get them, we put them up on the screen, we answer them. So it's kind of a cool thing. Uh, again, we came up with this idea for 2000 meals. It worked beautifully. And so we did it again for Police State. And now it's what, available on Rumble? Is that the? It's available on Rumble and Salem Now, which is the Salem media platform. And then finally, uh, Epic TV. Um, they kind of partnered with us uh, on this as well. So we have three platforms to stream and watch the movie. And then we have our DVDs available for sale uh, from Shopify or from Salem now. And so um, as I started this conversation, how how did the success of 2000 Mules change how you did and launch this movie, if anything at all? Well, it was really more that after... Um, after COVID, we had to think of a little different way to do things. So, you know, the economics of theaters is very tricky. When you when you buy a movie ticket for $12, uh, the movie theaters take about six or seven of those dollars right off the top. So you're down to like five bucks. Then a distributor takes like a dollar off of that. So you end up with like $4 uh, per ticket. And, and really what that means is that you have to have sell a giant number of tickets to make the theatrical um, 
of a movie viable. Uh, and the other thing you have to do is spend a great deal of money in publicity to drive people to the theater. So for all these reasons, um, a lot of movies have have you know run into a, a, a wall after COVID. But uh, and this is really why we thought we have to do some things a little differently. We tried that with mules. It worked really well. And so we're like, okay, this may be a business plan that works for us going forward. We'll replicate the model for police state. And so far we have. This sounds like a really odd question to ask a guy like you, but with the SAG after strike currently happening and all these actors on the sidelines, was that an opportunity for you to market this because all these actors uh, can't go out there and market what's in the theater, but it, it kind of in some ways presented an opportunity for you to suck up some of the oxygen? Interesting question. We have uh, never thought of it that way because we don't think that uh, <laughs> my films compete with anything else out there. We never worry about, uh, you know, there's a new Lion King coming out and so they're going to take away our audience. It is true. We keep an eye on what else is coming out just so we have a feel of what's in the market. But um, I think what's interesting is we have a brand and a pretty unique type of film and so people either want to see the film or they don't want to see the film. But it's not like the old days where you'd kind of walk to the theater. You'd be like, yeah, let me see. I, you know, I don't really know what I want to see. Maybe I'll go. Oh, let's go check that one out. It's not like that. And in fact, interestingly, I was at a theaters in my local neighborhood to sort of look at just kind of say hello to the audience and so on. And the theater manager was telling me, he goes, you know, in two showings and we had two showings on each of those days. He goes, you had more people in the theater than for any other movie today, all showings put together. So in other words, he goes, basically, you know, you guys are putting money in our pocket more than <laughs> any studios right now. Yeah, they, they were like, maybe we are conservative after all. We don't like Hollywood. Um, it was interesting um, to me. I get why he's a great interview, but talk to me about your partnership in this or whatever. I don't even know what the relationship was. But when you introduced the movie down at Mar-a-Lago, Dan Bongino got up, stay, uh, you know, and you talked about how he was involved in the movie. What was Dan Bongino's role and why? Well, Bongino's role was um, really more in um, the conceiving of the storyline of the film. Like, like, in other words, what do we want to reveal in this film? He was uh, a thread line uh, in the interview uh, for the film. In other words, right. Typically for interviews, you know, we'll interview a guy about one topic uh, as maybe an FBI whistleblower. Uh, but with Dan, we uh, had an interview that was more extensive and stretched through the major kind of blocks or themes of the film. And then finally, um, you know, I, wanted to I wanted to partner with some guy who was a credible uh, connection to the police state, a guy who's like been in the cops or someone who's been a secret service agent, someone who has an idea of how these police agencies work. So Dan seemed like a natural fit. Um, and also, obviously, I thought that I have a big platform. He has a big platform. This is going to help us to be able to get the word out about the movie. So uh, Dan brought a lot to the table with this project. Yeah, I, I liked it because of his background. Uh, you know, he sort of, it wasn't just, he can transcend now into politics, he's been a candidate, he's been involved in, in, in close to Trump, so he could talk, he, he really was that through line throughout the movie. The thing that I thought was interesting about this, and it was kind of funny, um, I'll, I'll work backwards into this for the audience, but like when I was getting ready to take my seat, there was a gentleman and he was wearing a, a red MAGA type hat. And he said to me, um, you know, 
you see me up on the screen. And I was kind of like, because he had a hat on, I couldn't. And I realized it was the character that played that lead FBI supervisor type person in your movie. And, um, and so it was kind of cool. I was chatting with him for a bit before. But what I thought was unique about this, and, and again, I'll call it a documentary. I'll let you label it how you want, is that for the first time that I can remember in a documentary, there was really a, a, a major character that was fictional, if you will. Not that he, he was playing an FBI supervisor, if I'm correct, but that you had brought in an actor to play that. And so my question is, why did you make that decision um, as opposed to maybe having somebody who had been an FBI agent talk about their role? And secondly, um, do you think that those scenes are, are depicted, was the intent of them to, to, de to depict them accurately or was that supposed to be illustrative? Well, okay, there's a bunch of stuff here. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> with, with 2,000 Mules, we had, um, we wanted to have a running theme of a mule dropping ballots in the box. So we had an actor play the mule. Now, it was very obvious it was an actor because you'd see him go up to the box, then you would go inside the drop box and watch the ballots come <laughs> in. So obviously this was staged. Um, and then separately in that film, we had surveillance video, we had geo-tracking, but unbelievably to me, there were people who said, well, Dinesh, you didn't label the actor that this is a reenactment. Uh, and I was like, whoa, I, I was like, I think I thought that was really obvious. <laughs> but nevertheless, for this film, I go, OK, just to avoid any confusion, every time we're using actual dash cam footage or peephole footage or surveillance footage, I'm going to put actual footage on the screen. And we did do that. So it's really obvious that when we have Nick Searcy, who, by the way, is a well-known actor. He's played in a lot of different roles, a lot of TV shows, lots of movies. So it's, it's quite clear that we have an actor playing this role. Now, uh, the reason for this is to, is to make the movie more cinematic, to make it more visual. I can talk about the FBI office, but it's kind of like, well, what does that look like? What would an FBI sort of operation center look like? Uh, and so we, you know, we actually rented an office building and recreated that whole FBI headquarters. It looks legit. I'll tell you it's this. Very I legit. It. I, I was sold. Yeah, very legit. And remember that uh, we had two whistleblowers, Kyle um, Serafin and Steve Friend. So we we actually hired them on, as consultants in the movie because I wanted the uh, FBI raids and the language and the dialogue to be completely authentic. I wanted people who are in DHS or DOJ or, or the FBI to watch this film and go, oh, that's exactly how that would have gone down. You know, so... The, so what happened is Nick Searcy was like, I ad-libbed a lot, Dinesh, but basically the FBI dudes were feeding me the rhetoric. They were telling me what the division chief would say, um, uh, how, what I, you know, if somebody is being walked out of the office, this is how this would happen. Um, and so I think there's a feeling of authenticity in the film, but at the same time, it's clear that you're, well, maybe docudrama is probably a fair way to describe it because a lot of the film is interviews. Right. And uh, when people like Mark Houck describe what happened to them, and, he, and in, in the movie, we have some of the footage that is from the FBI, uh, and is from the police dash cam. But on the other oh, hand, just, we just also- so clear, Dinesh, I don't interrupt. In this particular thing, Mark Houck is the pro-life uh, gentleman from Pennsylvania, correct? Who's exactly. House, what's that? 
this is a guy who had his home raided. Right. And, and, I, and I think that that was the thing that I thought was really powerful in the movie is that, you know, just to take the audience there for a second, this guy, Mark Houck, I actually, why don't you just describe, because I, I won't do it justice, but take us back to how this started and when he was with his son to explain people this particular incident and then the scene you depict in the, in the doc. Mark Houck has a kind of a, a group, uh, which, uh, which is sort of dads who are concerned about, about abortion. And he said he founded it because people always treat abortion like it's only about women and somehow as if the children don't matter to the father. So he's like, well, fathers care about this. So he's got this group, I think it's called All the King's Men, the king, of course, referring to Christ. And they go and they, they go outside these clinics and they try to counsel women. Uh, and what happened is on this particular occasion, Mark Huck was with his 12-year-old son and one of the counselors became enraged and comes out to confront them and starts screaming at the kid. And um, so Mark Huck is like, leave my son alone. You know what? If you want to argue with me, we can do that. We've done it before. But the guy keeps it up. And then instinctively, Mark Huck sort of reacting like a dad pushes the guy and he sort of falls back. He's not hurt in any serious way, but he goes inside the building. He apparently files a complaint, but the complaint is ultimately just thrown out. Nothing happens to it. But then the Biden DOJ launches a major FBI raid. Mark Houck is arrested. He's booked. He's charged under the so-called FACE Act, which is, quote, in interfering with reproductive services. Now, think about it. He wasn't, there weren't, a, this guy wasn't escorting a bunch of women in the clinic. Mark Houck didn't, like, physically interpose or block. Nothing like that. There was an altercation with this guy. He pushed the guy. And again, this is something that could have been resolved with, with um, in, in a very easy way. But right. instead, he was facing, what, I think 11 years in prison, a massive fine. You know, uh, what the government does in these cases typically is that then they come to you and say, if you'll accept a one-year plea, uh, you avoid this whole uh, scenario of your whole life being ruined. But Mark Hauk told me, he goes, I talked to my wife and we agreed, I'm not doing it. I'm not taking a plea. I'll, I'll take the risk on the 11 years. He, so he went before the jury and, uh, you know, the good thing was this is a case where the police state uh, strike didn't work, had a happy ending because the jury just looked at it and they're like, this is ridiculous. And they acquitted him completely of all charges. And he's he's a free man. It took like, what, one hour? Exactly. And they uh, it took it took an hour. And the judge, uh, the judge even shrugged his shoulders as if to say this was kind of a interesting Wait. spectacle right here. The thing that I thought, getting back to the to the, how we started this, is that you actually have the the footage. This guy, just to be, I mean, again, to, just to put this in context, pushed a, a counselor, apologized for it. The police dropped the case, and then months later, the FBI, at the break of dawn, knock on his door, saying, "Open the door! Open the door! Open the door!" According to Mark and according to the footage you showed, never identify themselves as uh, federal officials, he's saying, hey, look, I live in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Uh, what do you think I'm going to just, oh, you know, I'm sitting there at 6 a.m. And they dash into the, uh, to his house with long guns. I, I just seems to me, I think that to me was an unbelievably powerful moment where it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to see it. And so how hard was it for you to get that footage? Because I got to imagine the government was like, I'm not, <laughs> we don't want people to see how we actually operate. Yeah, we have quite a bit of that type of footage in the film. You might remember that when they raided this other Hispanic guy named Joe Bolanos, they uh, the, the FBI took a uh, they they covered up the camera. They didn't want the, they didn't want why, any. Oh, why, that's, oh, 
I'm so glad you brought this up because I love that scene. And all of a sudden he's like, but they didn't know there was a ring camera. <laughs> he had two cameras. So fortunately he recorded the whole thing. And so the wonderful thing is it gives people a sense quite apart from our cinematic recreations. It's like, this is what an actual FBI raid looks like. Those are the guys. This is how they do it. And then also, if you remember, he, he kept his apartment, which is unusual, right? Normally somebody is like, oh, this is horrible. Let me clean it all up. He left his apartment exactly the way they left it. And you can see it. Yeah. And, you know, it looks like Gaza. I mean, it looks like it is trash from top to bottom. And of course, you know, no apologies. They don't fix it up. They just do the damage and then they walk out of there. It was, and that's what I thought, again, the thing that is sometimes that is fast, not fascinating, but powerful and takeaway is that when you watch the movie, you know, these are ordinary people that this guy, um, and, and the thing in, in this particular incident, he, he, he had not, they, they didn't, did they ever charge him with a crime? Are we talking about Halka Volanos? Volanos. Well, ultimately they couldn't charge him because he didn't even go inside the Capitol. Right. You know, so, so they, here's they guy, ultimately figured but, out. But that that's the they, thing is that here's a guy who's, and when you watch this, you're not kidding. I mean, this guy's place is destroyed, destroyed. They were stepping on things, crushing things as if there was evidence. Like there was no, like he didn't, he didn't commit a crime. And so there was nothing to find. And that was what I thought was so shocking about that raid of this guy's house. It's like, what were you going to find that he had, ha I mean, it wasn't like, he had something that you could go in and search for. No, I mean, let's let's retrace the story. So Joe Bolanos is this guy in New York. He's a, um, an apartment manager, if you will. And he decides to go down to DC and check out the Trump rally. And it's not even because he's a massive Trumpster. I think he just thought it was kind of historic. And this is a guy who likes, he also likes to video things and create sort of slides like in the old days where you show your friends, you know, I've been to Europe, check out my slides. So he comes down to D.C. and he makes video of January 6th. He walks toward the Capitol, but the moment he sees people like climbing through on the, on the windows and stuff, he's like, I'm, I'm not doing that. So he then turns around, heads back to his hotel room, goes back to New York, and then he's rounding up his buddies, you know, at the local bar or restaurant, and he's showing them his footage. And apparently one of his neighbors sees him do this and becomes like a snitch, almost like in the cartoon, you know, Soviet days and calls the FBI. Uh, and the FBI decides, OK, let's raid the guy. And so they, they launch this massive force on, on him. And uh, then they drag him into the FBI van. They interrogate him for hours. The poor man has a stroke. In fact, he's now walking with a cane. Absolutely disproportionate and preposterous. Um, and, uh, and as I say, this is, this is the kind of thing that's happening. I, I'm glad you noticed it's, it's ordinary guys, because, you know, there are going to be people who say to me, Dinesh, you know, I'm not Donald Trump and I didn't go inside the Capitol in January 6th and I pay my taxes. So none of this could ever happen to me. Part of what I want to show in the film is that police states really very quickly get out of hand. Uh, they don't tend to discriminate. Uh, and they will go after people, even people who did nothing that you might remember elsewhere in the film. One of the air marshal whistleblowers points out that they're following people. Air marshals are right now following people who went to D.C. in or around January 6th, regardless of whether they had anything to do with the rally 
or the Capitol. You could have been going there to, you're a 17 year old kid and you're going to see your dad or you're there for a business meeting and you've got an air marshal following you right now. Unreal. Well, that was what is so fascinating is that that woman in the film talks about the fact that initially there were X number of air marshals. This is what they did. And now it's become a bunch of people who follow people who fly in and out of the nation's capital. Exactly. And, and not only on the planes, they follow you to your house. You know, if you uh, continuing my example, if you're that 17 year old kid, you go to see your dad and your, your dad brings another guy. He gets on the list, then they start following him. And all of this is, is to kind of pursue a, a charade. And the charade is, we're fighting domestic extremism and domestic terrorism. And then the Air Marshals Association, which is actually the Air Marshals Group, which is part of the, the TSA and part of the uh, Department of Homeland Security, goes to Congress and says, we followed, you know, 72,000 suspected domestic extremists. And Congress goes, oh, well, you obviously need tens of millions of dollars to keep up this necessary enterprise. So there's an element here of brutality, but there's an element of sheer stupidity. And if you know police states around the world, this is a very classic combination of brutality and stupidity. So that was what I thought was interesting about the whole premise of the movie, right? Uh, there were two things, and I'll suss them out separately. Number one, there was this sense politically that Donald Trump is this dictator, this authoritarian figure. Um, and I thought you made a point that was interesting, which was for a guy who's doing that, he's doing a pretty bad job at it. Like that he doesn't have all of these uh, agencies of government, especially in law enforcement, on his side. Like the DOJ, the FBI, uh, the intelligence communities are not out there saying, hey, let's further Donald Trump's stay in office or whatever. In fact, they're, they're very anti him. And that was sort of a point that was a takeaway to me that I thought about because it's sort of contradictory to the idea of what a normal police state looks like. Yeah. I mean, think about Biden. Does Biden control his own DOJ? Of course he does. Is Mayorkas doing the bidding of Biden? Do you get the impression that Mayorkas is being protective of Biden, trying to advance the Biden agenda, go after Biden's enemies? Yes, it's very obvious that is the case. Under Trump, it was not the case. Trump did not control his own DOJ. There were investigations of Trump being launched out of the DOJ during the Trump administration. So that's the point, is what kind of what kind of police state operator are you when the police agencies of government are actively pursuing you in your own administration? Right. But here's the thing that I think is interesting when you look at Trump. So let's first start at this. It was Jeff Sessions that launched. So is it Trump that picked the wrong people or is it a default that that's where it starts? No, I think what it is is that, uh, you know, there are there are some advantages to being an outsider a businessman, a guy without a lot of government experience. The advantage is you come in with a fresh perspective. You don't take things for granted. You're willing to um, uh, widen the parameters of what is acceptable and so on. But here's the downside. And that is you have no idea the depth of the corruption that's in the government now. So I think when Trump came in, even though he kept talking about draining the swamp, I think he gravely underestimated the depth of the swamp. And he well, underestimated the fact that this was not simply a matter of a few bad apples, but rather that there was a structure of incentives that had been distorted going back to the Obama days, but then, but then continuing uh, on and continuing into the Trump administration so that, so that Trump didn't realize that the way to handle this was essentially to come in 
and, um, and, and fire people left and right. Almost like when you come into a company and you realize there's a lot of kind of rot in the company. Think of Elon Musk, for example, taking over Twitter, taking over X. You, even Elon Musk, I think, underestimated how bad things were at Twitter. To this day, you'll see people at Twitter going, oh, there's a lot of algorithms. I'm still being banned. And then Elon Musk will comment, I didn't know that. So right. even he is still like plumbing the depths of the rot at Twitter. I think that with Trump, it was the same thing. Trump had no idea that, that career people, political people, that there was a sort of cabal that was working and not only, by the way, in the police agencies of government, I think Trump, for example, took it for granted, as probably you and I did, that, a, that an organization like the CDC, you know, the Center for Disease Control, these are the people in the white coats. You know, you could trust those guys. If they say it's an epidemic, it's an epidemic. If they say we need a vaccine, we need a vaccine. Right. So uh, I don't think it never occurred to Trump that, no, guess what? There's a lot of ideological manipulation and these guys have been funding gain-of-function research and now they, they don't want to be busted and so they're going to try to alter the narrative about where we got the virus. I mean, we're, we know all this now. But I think I'm, the reason I'm not too harsh on Trump about all this stuff is because I don't think there's any way to have known it in advance when he got there. Oh, I, listen, I've been in and out of government um, for, for years. I don't I don't think I still fully appreciate it. I guess that's but but let's segue this into what if Trump if Trump wins, gets a second term. Um, I've always I mean, look, I'll give you an interesting example. I remember back in the Bush days, I had a good friend. And he was serving in one of the departments and he was trying to make some very, very uh, effective change. And the bureaucracy basically, someone in the bureaucracy came to him and said, listen, here's the deal. Uh, you can push back against us and we will file X number of claims against you, say that you harassed us, that you did all this and make your life miserable. You're a political appointee. You're only here for a few years. We have nothing to lose. We are career bureaucrats. And he was so shocked by the fact that these guys were very much, um, that they, how, how dug in they were at what was going to happen, how it was going to play out, and that they were threatened by anybody who wanted to do that. If Trump wins a second term, what, what would your advice be to him? Because I think to say, okay, just fire everybody. Well, how do you know who to fire, how deep to go, where to go, and who to replace him with? So in my opinion, the way to handle this is that Trump needs a somebody who has ruthless operational efficiency, which is, by the way, not Trump. Um, <laughs> people have strengths uh, in, in politics, and you do need people who are going to be, I think the, the strength of Trump is that he's got this kind of animal magnetism. When he enters the room, every head turns. I mean, this is something Reagan had. Not, not a whole lot of people have that. So to say, for example, DeSantis does not have that. If DeSantis walks into a room that's full, no head turns, you know, it's, oh, there's Ron DeSantis, and, and everyone's like, aha. But, but, but on the other hand, uh, in Florida, I think DeSantis did show and has shown, continues to show, kind of this ruthless operational efficiency. DeSantis is interested in things like, oh, there's a progressive college that is run by the state, but you've got all these crazy left-wingers there but this is connected with the government. Why don't we replace the board? And if we replace the board, we remake the college. We hire different faculty. Yep. We have the college, but it's now doing different things. And uh, there may be people that we can't fire because they have tenure, 
okay, well, let's torture them. Let's just make their life really miserable, give them long hours, really boring assignments, or move them into places where they aren't really doing any teaching. And so they get really frustrated. They end up going elsewhere. So you have to get people, someone who knows how to do this. This is a different task uh, than speaking at a rally. It's a different task than signing a piece of legislation. It's essentially uh, hand-to-hand bureaucratic infighting. Uh, And there are people who are really good at it. I saw some people in the Reagan administration who were good at it. Uh, And what they would do with these career bureaucrats is essentially just make their lives unbelievably miserable. You might have remembered reports in the Reagan years, you know, bureaucrats are getting demoralized and are leaving public service. And this was always portrayed in the media like it's a national tragedy. But in fact, it's a really good thing. It's all these people who who essentially have lifetime jobs, um, have this kind of sense of entitlement, think that they run the place. And so running them out of town is actually a very good thing. So whether or not Trump can put together the managerial team to execute that, to me, is an open question. But that is what needs to be done. And uh, OK, so I got that if it, but but when he gets in, do you think four years he can do that? I mean, is that that's the nut of this, right? DeSantis keeps making the case you need eight to come in and do this. Do you think Trump has the discipline and the time to make it happen? Well, I think that I think that victories always lead to other victories. In other words, you don't have to finish the job in four years. I don't think you can actually reverse the police state in four years, in part because it's not even just the executive branch. Think about something like censorship. You know, it involves the government, multiple agencies of government, as you know, but it involves uh, academics who make lists of all the people who need to be banned. Then you've got nonprofits who are often the middleman. The government hands off the names to the Stanford Internet Observatory or the so-called Virality Project. Those guys then go to the digital platforms. So then there's the media cheerleading the censorship. So this is something that that is going to take the Supreme Court plus the executive branch, plus ultimately Congress, plus some activity on the part of state and local governments. So I see this as a multi-year project. But the good news is that once you start getting momentum on your side, uh, then even if you don't get it all done, but you make enough progress, people go, oh, well, that's the direction we want to be moving. And think of the civil rights movement. It, It won victories in the 30s and 40s and 50s. But it didn't win its big victories until the 1960s, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of uh, 65. Uh, But those were the culmination of many other small victories along the way. So let me just ask you this. What is the I I, I, the movie was powerful. And when you watch it, I hate to tell you this, like it's it's depressing because it's so enlightening about agencies, and I think you just put it well a minute ago, there are agencies where you think this agency is supposed to be caring for me, looking out for me. And you point out some things that were just, I mean, frankly, scary. What's the glimmer of hope though? Well, the the first glimmer of hope, and I I would apply the same uh, principle to 2000 Mules as to this film. And that is that there is a great value to widespread public awareness. Yeah. Uh, you might have seen just recently, uh, I think this was in Connecticut, um, you know, there's a busted, you know, uh, uh, voter uh, fraud operation involving Democrats. Right. And But what, what's involved? Uh, stuffing of ballot boxes. Ballots. Um, you know, and, 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 and if you look at that footage, it's eerily reminiscent of 2000 Mules. I thought of that. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And you're like, same playbook. Now, what makes you think that 
the Democrats who think that Trump is like the early incarnation of Hitler, if they're going to willing to do it with other Democrats, that they wouldn't try to do it against Trump. Right. So similarly with, with police state, the greatest enemy here is apathy. And I don't just mean, mean the apathy of the non-political guy. I'm talking about the apathy of Republicans who still think it's business as usual. Right. You don't realize that, you know, this is a little bit of a dangerous situation. I mean, we're not talking, we're not arguing about whether the tax rate should be 38 or 36. We're talking about our basic civil liberties. I mean, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of conscience, equal rights and equal justice under the law. These are not supposed to be open to political negotiation. Majorities right. are not allowed to trample on these rights. And yet here they are being trampled on. So right. uh, part of it is, is, is this kind of, a, kind of an urgent wake up call to the GOP. Yeah. And I think if I achieve that goal with this movie, uh, that will be an excellent first step. Well, I'll tell you, when you watch Police State, my friends, it is you will be enlightened and enlightened in many areas uh, about what's happening. And, and you're right. If the first step is enlightenment, uh, you hit you hit that out of the park. Dinesh, uh, thanks for being with us. I really appreciate it. Go see it. Salem on the app. Rumble. Check it out. Police State. Like I said, sit back and, and, and be ready to absorb some pretty powerful stuff. Uh, I know it had a huge impact on me, and I think everybody that watched it that I was with had the same thing. Uh, so, so if I may say, the you know the one-stop shop uh, to see this movie is just the website, policestatefilm.net. Why? Because it then has tabs for all the different ways you can stream it. It tells you where you can get the DVD. So policestatefilm.net is the place to go. All right, policestatefilm.net. You get it all there. Thank you guys for being with us and wrapping up your week here on The Sean Spicer Show. We'll be back Monday, a lot to break down. Please continue to subscribe, uh, YouTube, Rumble, Apple Podcast. You know where to go. I'll go do it. Five stars in the rating. Remember to turn your clacks back this weekend because we air six o'clock tonight and on Monday on the 1st and everywhere else. Thanks a lot. Have a great weekend. Continue to subscribe, share, and enjoy your weekend.